0: Your questions answered, repeated readings, reader's theater, text complexity, and a poem about a swimming ool. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I am a former fourth grade teacher. I'm an elementary literacy coordinator for a local school district. I have a PhD in literacy from Utah State University, and I am someone who just wants to know more about reading. I have a treat for all of you today. I think this episode was one of the funnest I've had recording, although I think I say that with just about every episode I do. I I love doing this podcast and being able to talk with researchers and think, real hard and critically about how do we support kiddos in literacy uh, in, in meaningful ways. And uh, this episode is, it's a great one. I, um, I'm i really excited for it. On this episode, uh, this is the long-awaited Q&A episode with Dr. Timothy Rosinski and Dr. Chase Young. Back in July, we sent out a survey just to the masses on, on the internet of what folks wanted to know about literacy. And so we we, uh, we had folks be able just to submit their questions, and then we discussed and, and sort of found ones that we want to talk about. And that's that's what this episode has with you, is it's uh, Dr. Chase Young and Dr. Timothy Rizinski, uh answering your questions, and uh, we, we really have a great time. Dr. Chase Young is a returning interviewer on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Uh, we, I interviewed him about the book that he co-authored with Tim Rosinski. Uh, called tiered fluency instruction. You can go check out that book, uh, that uh, those episodes. It's like episodes four and five, really, really early on. But uh, Chase Young is a professor at the School of Teaching and Learning at uh, Sam Houston State University in Texas, and congratulations to Chase because he recently was just promoted to a full professor. So congratulations, Chase. And Dr. Timothy Rosinski is a professor of reading education at the Reading and Writing Center at Kent State University. Very grateful for the time that they spent in in designing this episode and sending out the questionnaires, and uh, we we really yielded a a worldwide response with the questions that we received. So thanks to those that were able to input questions. I apologize we weren't able to answer all of them, but the episode would have been very long had we opted to do that. Uh, So I hope you enjoy the episode and stick around after the show for my two cents on reading fluency. Dr. Timothy Rosinski, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and Dr. Chase Young, welcome back to the Teaching Literacy Podcast.
1: Thanks, uh, Jay. Glad to be with you. Yep, always good to be here.
0: So this is a special episode. I, we've ne- I've never done anything like this before. I'm glad that you both would would join me here. Uh, we uh, we sent out questions to the masses and uh, what folks wanted to know about oral reading fluency or reading fluency, and so this is a QA and a episode where we're going to Go through some of the responses that, that we received and see if we can help folks out with their questions in reading fluency we had a broad response and I was I was actually surprised with uh, you know obviously you know there was a, a, a strong response here in the United States but we had uh, questions from the Philippines from Nigeria from Brazil so that was really fun to see such a, a worldwide response to questions on oral reading fluency people people want to know so, Let's, let's get into it. I, I first wanted to ask both of you, Dr. Young and Dr. Rosinski, what initially drew you towards reading research in general, but then uh, in, in specific, specific reading fluency?
2: And since I'm little, slightly older than Chase, I guess I'll take the lead on that. And first of all, Jake, uh, please feel free to call us, uh, Tim and Chase, uh, make, make it a little bit more informal. For me, it actually began as a teacher uh, back in the—I uh, hate to say—the mid to late 1970s. Uh, I was working in, outside of Omaha, Nebraska, as an intervention teacher, elementary school, and I was working on my master's degree. And I thought I, you know, knew knew some. I thought I knew my stuff. I'm working with these kids, and for the most part, you know, I was able to help them out. But there were these kids that just didn't seem to budge. I couldn't budge them off the dime. And uh, these were the kids that were the, the not so fluent ones. They were the robot readers, were excessively slow. They got the words right, but weren't uh, terribly fluent. Well, fortunately for me, uh, the professor, professors at the time had us reading uh, some of these articles that were beginning to appear on fluency. Jay Samuels, the method of repeated readings. Uh, Carol Chomsky, after decoding, then what? After you teach kids phonics, but they're still not making prog- progress, then what? And of course, her answer was fluency. So I began to just play around with these things and apply them as best I could in my own situation. And what happened was these kids began to take off. I mean, some of them literally began to you know, just explode in terms of their breeding achievement. Um, others, not so much, but they were still making progress. So that convinced me that uh, there's something to do this. And uh, so when I went on to my doctorate, uh, doc- doctoral degree at uh, Ohio State, you know, I decided that's what I wanted to t- take a look at in terms of my dissertation study. And what we did was uh, created a, a, a model, a statistical model of fluency. And we demonstrated that uh, among third graders and fifth graders, it was a significant contributor, not only, well, to, to comprehension, overall reading proficiency. So that's that's how I got my uh, feet wet on this and been on it ever since. So, uh, And I think there's, I, I've been pretty pleased with how things have been turning out in terms of our Recognition of fluency is and its importance. Chase, what do you what do you have?
1: Yeah, well, similar to that, you know, it all began in the classroom. Um, I was a second grade teacher, uh, fresh out of the gate, and uh, and I, I thought I thought I had all the answers, but I sure didn't. <laughs> uh, those those first year kids could probably sue me. Uh, but uh, what? So I decided that I needed to do some more reading and some more research and figure out how to best serve these kids and. And I remember you know, implementing a balanced literacy model, but my favorite part of the day turned out to be fluency because it seemed to be more fun. There were activities that, that uh, got us interacting and in small groups. So, it, um, and I read a lot about those in the, this book called The Fluent Reader uh, by Tim. And uh, so I guess my, my interest in fluency started more practically and not necessarily research but as I moved into the role of a reading interventionist, similar to Tim, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't send me all the kids that uh, that were that were good to go. Uh, they sent me, you know, the, the tough cases. And, and I started researching some of the, the reading fluency interventions from the 60s and 70s. <laughs> My goodness, they are timeless. And I saw kids also explode. And I can remember their faces right now of, you know, coming in and being a couple of years behind grade level and then spending 10, 18 weeks of, you know, intense reading fluency interventions and, and watching them read on grade level and, and, and tell me about their favorite authors and exit RTI, which was something that, <laughs> that uh, was, was foreign to me at the time. So, you know, I, I, I became a believer too. And just like Tim, I've been on it ever since.
0: I, if I can chip in my two cents of, of how reading fluency caught my eye is when I was when I was going through my doc program it was probably about my second year and I, I started to read articles on on reading fluency and you know some of those from the 80s uh, Dick allington and uh, you know RJ Samuels and then some of the more recent stuff and I, I just sort of started to feel that uh, what researchers were talking about, Reading fluency in a different way than what I was sometimes seeing implemented in in practice and implemented in my own classroom, it made me think long and hard about my fluency practices. And I, uh, I, I kind of came from a place of being ambivalent towards fluency, uh, towards and really embracing it and seeing it is it is a beautiful, beautiful thing when it's sort of understood and 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 implemented accordingly. So. I'm hoping that this this episode can help target some of that and be able just to help clarify how our researchers talking about fluency and how how do we see it and and how might that be uh, maybe a little bit of a paradigm shift from how it's you know from a, it's sort of an implementation in the classroom whether that's been implied or explicit. Yeah,
2: Jake, when you when you when you mentioned having that experience, are you talking about stopwatch reading and getting kids to read faster than the day before? Yep. Yeah, that's. Yeah pretty much the case around the country and uh yeah that that's where chase and i've actually been playing around with this idea and, and actually we've written about it recently in reading research quarterly and um some others about the art of teaching reading fluency it's not just science but when we take that approach that uh, it's an art and, uh, so, and you know, if you think about it um having kids um uh, read for the purpose of reading fast isn't very artful but having kids rehearse uh, in order to put on a reader's theater performance or a poems poetry slam that is artful and it's authentic and as you were saying chase kids really dig that stuff i mean they get into it
0: they do let's let's get into the questions i wanted to start with this one right out of the gate because it's probably the most technical question that we received so if you're not a technical person you can just skip forward a minute or two but I think it's a great way to frame some of the research that's, that is being conducted. So uh, and I'm, I'm probably going to pronounce this name incorrectly, but Gerlaine uh, Hickman from Brazil wants to ask, is there any study on reading fluency using neuroimaging? If yes, who or which institution is studying this area? And I, I think, Chase, you, you're doing a little bit of, of work looking at neuroimaging research that other folks have done in neuroimaging. Uh, would you perhaps want to start um, elaborating on that? Yeah, Jake. Before
2: I turn it over to Chase, I just wanted to do a shout out to Jolani. Uh, that's her, the pronouncing pronunciation of uh, her name. She's from um, Brazil, and uh, I happen to she spent a, a year with us at, the, at Kent State, and so uh, she's done some re, really remarkable work in the area of fluency in, uh, in Portuguese. Uh, so just uh, say uh, hi, Jolani, if you're listening, and uh, I'll let uh, Chase take it from here.
1: Sure. Awesome. Small world, right? <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, as far as who and where, um, I can uh, I can point you towards uh, Vanderbilt University, where they're doing a lot in their uh, work with the fMRI and neuroimaging, uh, not just with reading fluency, but quite a few other processes in reading. Um, they um, they have um, there's a guy named James Booth who got a lot of funding that's been that's been he uh, started a brain development lab. And you can actually go to that website. It's on Vanderbilt's website. And you can read all the publications that they have from there. But also, there happens to be a website called Open Neuro, where you can download all of the data. There's like 3000 data sets just from the brain development lab at uh, Vanderbilt. But then there's also tons of others. Um, it's Pretty technical, don't know how crazy you want to get with that, Um, but uh, the the files are a little complicated to download, Uh, uh, but there's there's tutorials and things. Uh, Once you figure that out, it's even more complicated to read them, Uh, (laughs) but yeah, there is work being done. And I think related to fluency, one of the biggest things they look at is, uh, is automaticity and its role in reading fluency. Um, they have done fMRIs in uh, what I'm gonna sound fancy, it's the ventral occipital temporal cortex, which seems to be extremely important for word recognition recall. The more efficient that part of the brain becomes, is associated with higher reading ability. So that's, again, more evidence that, that we need our readers to become more automatic so that they can focus their cognition on, on other processes. I don't know if you wanted to hear all that, but... That's, that's
0: great. I think anything fMRI is, is or neuroimaging or otherwise, is, is really incredibly interesting. And I that, that part about automaticity, I think that's a really important part that sometimes misses the translation into practice, where, like, when we're measuring rate, that's it's really not rate we care about, it's, it's the automaticity. And so the rate's just serving as a proxy. And, uh, you know, schools tend to be short on FMRI machines to measure automaticity <laughs> in the, you know, the part of the brain you mentioned, Chase. Um, but, but rate is just a proxy for the automaticity. And, and uh, that's, I think, an area with, with neuroimaging and brain studies where, um, you know, obviously that, that area can be explored more, but in the classroom we can use rate because it's a, it's a pretty good proxy.
1: Well, you know, interventions that also focus on multiple, the multiple components of reading fluency, including prosody. Actually, you see glucose burn more in the brain because, you know, you're looking at this, uh, the automatic processing area of the brain. But once you start bringing in prosody and expression, parts of the right side of the brain start to light up as well. So you're actually exercising more of the, the whole reading system.
0: So this wasn't one of the questions, but I'm going to ask this one right out of the gate. So you mentioned prosody, which is reading, reading with expression. Um, I've heard Tim Shannon talk about reading with language, making it sound like language. Uh, how, how do you measure prosody? How might a classroom teacher be able to, to do that in a, in a reasonable way without a, a brain imaging?
2: Well, that, that, um, that's where we you know, tap into our own expertise as teachers. Teachers listen to kids read it every day you know, what good reading sounds like, what we need and uh, is you know some, something to guide us. And I'm going to you know toot my own horn here, Jerry Zutel, mm-hmm. uh, another colleague of mine and, and myself several years ago, we created a, what we called a multi-dimensional fluency rubric. And uh, basically it's it looks at f- several dimensions of uh, prosody or fluency, one being rate actually, uh, but also things such as pace, uh, not pacing, but expression, volume, confidence, uh, phrasing, all of those various features that we might associate with prosody. And you simply listen to kids read for a minute or so and, and rate them on a, on a four point scale on each of those dimensions. And it gives you a pretty good indication of uh, where, um, where kids are. Um, the National Assessment of Educational Progress has used something similar to that in their fluency studies where they rate kids on it. I think it's only a, a Four or six people. And uh, they get quite remarkable correlations between that uh, uh, rating kids' prosody uh, in this very holistic sort of way and their overall reading performance is quite a strong correlation there. So that's that's one way. without getting too technical, you know, getting into the machines that
0: listen to kids read and such. And the, and the multi dimensional fluency scale, I'll just chip in, it's, it's really user friendly. It's great. It's evolved
2: over the years. The first time we did it, I think we had three dimensions and I think we expanded it a little bit more, uh, made it uh, a little bit more, um, what's, what's the right word, uh, more descriptive. And another place to find it actually is on my website, timrozinski.com under resources more recent version of that?
1: Yeah, I think my favorite dimension there, Tim, in the MDFS is uh, pace because it's linked to rate, but that's not what it's called. And you use language like appropriate pace. And we know that reading different types of text that we read, uh, we read at different paces for a reason, you know, something more technical, we're going to slow down and we're going to be really thinking about the vocabulary and things. And we may read a little bit, you know, at at a Higher pace um, in
2: fiction, um, so I love that language. That's way better than uh, rate. Yeah, that, that's a great point, uh, Chase. Uh, that it's not just straight speed. It's it's uh, using being being intentional uh, uh, on how you read. One of the things I really like about these kind of rubrics is that I know teachers, and I'm sure you guys do as well, who've actually translated them into kid lang- language and then put them on to dis- put these on display. So students can rate themselves using, you know, language that is more um, descriptive for, th- for them. So they develop that
0: metacognitive awareness of what it means to be a fluent reader. That's wonderful. Is that on your website too, Tim? I'm not sure to be honest. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> out there. We can. We can it's find not out there. there. Google. You can can my email, me. It
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's probably out there. I'm sure.
0: All right. Let's keep moving along. Um, Candy Cox from Texas. Is asking, when looking at fluency and struggling readers, should the modeling be with books on their level? Or is it appropriate to model higher level books and get the same results? And I love this question. So
1: before you all take this question, now I got to give a shout out. That is Candy Cox. She is my student right now. She's taking statistics. Way to go, (laughs) Candy. And she's surviving. Take it away, guys.
2: Okay. um, I'll, I'll take a stab at that one. Great good question, Candy, because oftentimes, you know, the the conventional wisdom is to put kids into instructional level material, you know, and of course, if you're a struggling reader, that's going to put you in a material that's below where you're actually assigned in terms of your grade level. I like to go back to a study done by Steve Stahl, the great Steve Stahl, working with second graders in in, in Georgia, and he found that repeated readings and assisted reading, these things actually worked with second graders, especially struggling readers. But What he found was the greatest gains was when the kids were given material that was slightly difficult at their frustration level. And, you know, I I remember getting into conversations with him about that, about, you know, how can we explain this? This flies against conventional wisdom. But the point we made was what what you're doing is you're giving, if you want to accelerate kids reading growth, you know, we do have to challenge them. Uh, But when you do, you got to give them support. And that support can come in the form of reading, modeling the text for the kids before they read on their own, read it with the kids, have the kids rehearse on their own. And uh, and, and so I, I really like that idea of challenging kids. You know, we just can't, we can't uh, stick with the uh, way, way things are. We need to work, especially for our struggling readers to you know, try to accelerate that progress. And I think that's one way to do. I think another point to keep in mind is, is interest. Um, if kids are interested in something, they're 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 willing to stick with it, you know, to learn to read something well, and so keep it. You know, uh, I like to say interest Trump's difficulty. Um, so find out what kids are interested in, and one of the things we often do is try to find material that is seasonal. So here we are, you know, in um, in September, uh, Constitution Day is coming up here in the next few weeks, middle of September. Why not have kids learn to read the preamble to the Constitution? Things. What I used to do as a kid, we used to have to do this. Or perhaps, um, you know, uh, come November, the, the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, we'd have students actually learn not, if not the entire speech by Mr. Lincoln, at least a portion of it. That's a pretty challenging text, but knowing that it you know is reflected something in, in history, uh, knowing that it's something that, you know, connects kids to Mr. Lincoln, uh, it, it can be quite, uh, quite uh, uh, motivating for them, and they'll work through it.
0: That's wonderful. I, I'll chip in here for a second. Um, so my my background originally, when I was sort of getting deep into things in my doc program, was was with dyad reading and uh, Morgan and colleagues. Two thousand, they they sort of investigated this of if uh, if we're doing you know paired uh, paired synchronous reading with peers in a classroom, uh, what level of difficulty material would would have would have the best outcomes? And um, and they did. I think it was two, three, and four, or maybe it was one, two, and three. Um, levels above the student's independent reading level. And uh, the, the data from that showed that the students that were above grade level that were reading above grade level text performed better than, than those who were reading yeah. grade level text. And, and then uh, you know a follow-up to that in 2018 with, with Brown and colleagues and my chair, Dr. Moore was, uh, was, was part of that study as well, of sort of investigated that with two, three, and four grade levels above the, the lower level readers that the peer tutors reading and they found that that above grade level performed better again. And that two grade levels was, was the sort of the sweet spot. And, and Chase, you've done research with um, read to impress and Tim, you've been to, that read to impress research as well, where you've done a grade level above uh, the, the two T's um, reading level and, and seen really good results as well.
1: Yeah. And that really came from a researcher kind of conversation when we were talking, it's, you know, we, we were set we sat down and we were testing these methods, obviously over the years and, it goes back to what Tim said. You know, we're offering such support that they're succeeding. So why not push it as high as we can, and uh, to to the point where they're reading even grade level material for the first time in their lives, and they're reading it successfully, which is not only great for for you know just their reading uh, achievement and improvement, but also their confidence which is, uh, you know, I mean, think about it. They have never read on grade level and all of a sudden they, they sound great and, and uh, they're performing well. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of research that says, like you said, uh, that, you know, the, the more challenging even into frustrational, I don't know if you guys saw that, uh, the webinar uh, what Tim Shanahan did for uh, International Literacy Association on text complexity. But he went through a whole lot of research about this and how we should be challenging our texts and even challenging the notion of this ninety-five percent and where it came from and seems arbitrary. And you know, I don't want to get controversial, but you know there is research. I went to a presentation, you know, back when we were allowed to go to presentations, and some people from Ohio State were like, you know, we found that eighty-nine percent accuracy. You know, kids who read books with eighty-nine percent they were the ones that made the greatest gains. And, and according to the, the lines that would can, that would be, they would be considered, uh, and frustrational, uh, when, when considering
2: accuracy. So, mm-hmm. Chase, I want to follow up on your note about confidence. I, th- I think that's huge. These kids who struggle, they know who they are. They see how they read compared to their classmates and, uh, uh, that idea of them get reaching a point where they can read just as well as you know any reader in the class is, is just you know really inspiring I, I know in our reading clinic we have kids perform at the end of our summer program they perform for grandparents and moms and dads and just to see them they, the confidence that they they come out of that with you know their chest sticking out you know I'm a good reader for, uh, and uh, I don't think we can underestimate the power of that I remember Carol Chomsky writing about it, that in her in her classic study, After Decoding Then What, the, the idea of reaching that level of proficiency is something that uh, is quite empowering for, for those children.
0: Absolutely. And that's where the power of repeated readings, I think, comes in, because if you have a, a struggling reader and, and you work with them on the Gettysburg Address again and again and again, they'll, they'll get it. And they can sound exactly like everyone else in the class. They, they, they can read it with language. And, and that's where some of the work in Reader's Theater that you both have done, I think that's a lot of the power in that is it's it's offering those students a repeated reading of a, of a complex text for an authentic purpose where they can perform it. Mm-hmm. And you'll
1: notice in Reader's Theater when you implement it consistently that those students who have traditionally been struggling, they realize the the amount of practice they get and how they can stand next to their peers and sound just like anybody else. You can't even pick them out of the lineup. It's like, who's the struggling reader here? And you don't even know. But when they find that out, they start picking the lead roles every single time. I want to be narrator one. I want to be Lysander, whoever it is. And that's because they know that that they're going to have an, more opportunity to show how fantastic they are. I just love that.
0: Yeah. And if you're a teacher looking for readers, theater script, Chase's website has tons of readers, theater scripts. Um, the bestclass.org. I think, is that your, isn't that your site? Yes. Yeah. Chase is one of the most
2: modest people I know. <laughs> and, and That's reflected in the name of his website, the best class. <laughs> the best class that was
1: a big shout out to my second graders in 2006. Uh, we okay. unanimously chose that as our classroom
0: website.
2: Oh, that's great. Wonderful. So, well,
0: let's keep trucking. Um, I now it's my turn for a shout out. I guess we all get a shout out. Uh, Casey Rowley is our next question and she used to teach across the hall from me when I was in the classroom and she's a third grade teacher, one of the earliest listeners of the podcast. And she's someone that has just latched on to thinking about how researchers are talking about things and and trying to align her instruction accordingly. And I I think she's doing a fantastic job at it. And she has a question I think is really important. What are some ways to keep the kids who are well above benchmark progressing?
2: Well,
1: I, I, I <laughs> go ahead, Tim.
0: Yeah, it depends upon what you mean by well
2: above benchmark in terms of the reading speed or just are they just, you know, hyper fluent? They can read anything with great expression and confidence and, and that. I, to me, I, the note that I wrote down here in response to Casey's uh, question uh, was just the notion of keeping it authentic, uh, finding real reasons for kids to engage in. Um fluency and uh, fluency practice. Uh, so finding those kinds of materials that, um, that they want to engage in, you know, keep doing, keep doing what you're doing, I suppose, is a good way of saying that. Uh, but, you know, it's the motivation, you know, so kids aren't just trying to become faster all the time. Uh, they're trying to become expressive in their, in, in, in their reading, in, in their, in their oral language and um, finding things such as poetry, readers, theater scripts, even songs, are uh, just, you know, those artful and authentic ways of making this happen in a classroom, knowing that your, your kids are going to progress in terms of fluency and overall reading achievement for that matter. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. When considering it overall, and those are great suggestions. That's exactly, I mean, make sure you have top-notch, awesome tier one reading fluency instruction, and they'll continue to grow. But it sounds like you keep doing what you're doing, but also Know, wide reading is is one of those things that's going to help too, and you know the other thing that I would recommend is that you know some of these well above benchmark uh, students don't get met with or the attention some of the other students in the class. So if you want to continue to push the needle on these kids, you want to spend the same amount of time with them as you do with any that you feel that
0: need extra support. Good point. Absolutely, and and, and I'll chip in there. I I'm assuming she's referring to you know a common you know fluency screener, and we. We think about fluency and it sort of has three major constructs, right? Of accuracy, rate or automaticity or smoothness, and then prosody. And those screeners typically, they, they hit two of those. They hit accuracy and, the, and, and rate, but right. they, they don't have prosody in there. And so I, I think that's, if, if, if you do have readers that are, that are high achievers in two of the three areas, according to your, your screener, then I think uh, pushing them with prosody and giving them those authentic, rich, complex texts and um, helping them get to a point where they're reading those with, with would be a good way to, the, there's not really an upper limit at that point. Cause you can always, you can always read more complex texts with, with more expression. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that could be a great way to help those quote unquote high achievers still be well, moving along. Let, let me throw
2: a little bit of a wrench in here. What about those kids though, that, who are <clears throat> the NASCAR readers, you know, they read mm-hmm. so fast. You're not really understanding what it is that they read. I still remember one of our students uh, in our reading clinic, actually, a couple of second graders coming in and the clinicians were working with them and, and gave them a passage to read. And both of these children looked up at the clinicians and said something to this effect. Am I supposed to read this as fast as I can? You know, and, and what do we do with those kids? Because we're seeing more and more of those kids, you, you know, they're they're reading fast, but not for the purpose of making meaning. They're reading fast for the purpose of reading fast. What do we do with those kids?
0: Perhaps that's a side effect of what I mentioned at the top of the episode, where uh, sometimes in in practice, whether you know whether intentional or, or not, that uh, things have been tweaked from maybe how things were talked about, how fluency has been talked about in research. That's that's speculation on my part, but uh, for the kid that's a that's a speed reader. I think with them, it's going to take. We we know that they can process the text with automaticity, um, but with them, we're going to have to have some coaching on. If, if they're doing it, if they're doing it that way, they're probably not doing it with a lot of expression. But they might take some coaching of let's let's think about the things that that good readers do. Let let me share with you things that I notice good readers do. Listen to my model. Yeah. Now let's have you try that again and, and slow down a little bit. And then I think with them too, it's going to be including little chunks of comprehension in there as well to help make the connection that. We, we don't just want devourers of print. We we we're looking for someone that as they're consuming the print, that they're processing it in a way that they can attend to the meaning, which is ultimately, right. you know, the outcome of why we read. Yeah. Right.
1: And, you know, I don't want to play host here, but that really goes into questions by Stephanie and Liz, both from areas of New York of, you know, their kids just reading and skipping words and just trying to get it done. And you guys have done a wonderful job of explaining that and, and, and you mentioned comprehension in there, you know, it's sometimes it's a simple conversation with kids. That's, that's the wonderful thing. I remember I was a reading specialist and they sent a kid who was, you know, read real monotone and, and choppy. And I sat down with them just kind of informally. I was like, well, why don't you read like you talk? And he goes, oh, I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> and you know, he was exited and that was done. Um, but other times, you know, it's a little more complicated than that, but I like to talk to the kids and be like, why are you Reading like yeah. you know, like a bear is chasing you. What what is going on? And 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 then we get into the purpose of reading and the main goal of reading and, and understanding, and, and then it comes back to purpose. It's like, so set a purpose. What why are we reading? Uh, and fortunately, some kids have internalized the fact that reading means getting done and doing it as fast as you can. That's a yeah, that's
2: a shame. Yeah, Jake, you mentioned uh... I love the, the reading like a bear is chasing you, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, but yeah. Uh, what you mentioned, Jake, about this notion of modeling, and I think that that really is critical. Uh, we one of the main th- things we can do as uh, teachers, parents, is to model fluent reading for our kids, read our kids. And of course, you know, one of the things I often say when I have a chance to speak to my my students is that. You know, of course, you want to talk about what you read, the content, but occasionally talk about how you read it. Did you notice how I slowed down here, or I had a dramatic pause, or I raised my the volume of my voice? And kids need to know this. And even sometimes do the opposite. You know, do a negative example. You know, read something as fast as you can for two or three sentences to your students, and you know you're going to get some rolling eyes looking at you. And of course, the the response is, "What's wrong? I got all the words right. Isn't that good enough?" And of course, uh, you know, no, we don't understand what you, what you're just read to us, you know. And, and of course, uh, the, the message is if if I read this way and you don't enjoy it or understand it, then you shouldn't be reading that way as well.
0: Yeah, I think back to, uh, was it R.J. Samuels barking at print is not reading. Was yeah. That, yeah, that's.
1: Yeah, uh,
0: and, um, and then I, uh, back to
1: what Pharaoh 66, it was listen, my child, and you shall read. Yeah.
0: I think there's great power in repeated readings. Uh, how often do we, you know, text is a, is a one-stop one, one show and we move on, but with, with being able to do those repeated readings, that allows the student to mimic your model and, and see how I paused there or see how I raised my voice there. Now you try it, but also for some of those speed readers where we do wanna do some work with comprehension to kind of help them make that transition to thinking about making meaning from text, targeted close reads or or close reading that's what it's all about is let's read this text multiple times and have a shifting purpose with each you know with each kind of read to build build comprehension so it's 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 so I just think fluency and comprehension can go so hand in hand that it doesn't have to be this either or thing that we sometimes make it to be it we can have all of it because good readers do all of it
1: Jake you just blew my mind you brought me back to my doc program When you said shifting purposes, it brought me back to Cooser. I was reading Cooser and in there, there was an example and it was a story and it was like, I want you to just read this story. So I read through the story and it was like, I walked into the house and I saw my guitar and there was a washer and dry. I passed the washer and dryer and I sat down and I picked up my remote and I turned on the TV and, and it went on and on and I was like, okay, great. And then the next line said, now read this as if you were a robber if you were about to burgle this house and I was like, that's crazy. And I'm like, Ooh, what kind of TV is it? Was that a stacked washer and dryer? These rentals, what's going on? Like, so it was, it was pretty powerful to just shift that purpose. Even though the main purpose is to understand if we go in with a different perspective, sometimes it gets us thinking a little bit more.
0: You really ease. I, that's why I love about fluency too, is it's so easy because it's support in connected text that we're providing as a teacher. It, it so easily can, can blend into so much else we're doing during the day. Content area: reading a math question. <laughs> we I, need to write
1: a teaching tip called "Shifting Purposes in Repeated
0: Reading." I'm down. Mm-hmm. I I I think that that's on my list of studies. That I'd love to do some. So, yeah.
2: well, you know, and and the other point on this is, you know, we often associate with uh, prosody with oral oral reading, which we do, but I I think we we need to help kids make the connection that the way you read orally reflects the way you read silently as well. You know, many of us actually, you know, admit to hearing hearing voices when we read that voices <laughs> ourselves. I, I, I love this quote by Maya Angelou, I had to pull it up as I was listening to you guys talk here uh, in her poem, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. She says, words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with shades of deeper meaning. And I think that is so true. I mean, it's, it's the, our voice, whether it's oral or silent, That adds meaning uh, to to the words that we
0: uh, encounter when we read. And we need to work on that with our students. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, We've got a pair of questions coming up next, and one is, the first one is, uh, so kind of taking from what what does fluency look like, perhaps pre-fluency for some really young kiddos, and then what things should we be thinking about with fluency in more of a secondary or even a post-secondary context. So uh, Kristen D is asking that uh, as, a, as a kindergarten teacher, she's doing a lot of work with phonemic awareness and, um, and phonics, uh, but she says, of course most students at this age are not reading much yet, but do we want their pre-reading skills that are being taught, hearing, identifying, beginning, middle, and ending sounds, to be fluent is focus on fluency more of a focus with all older students? It, it it just sounds like she's wanting to sort of frame what might fluency look like in a kindergarten setting. Well, I can tell
2: you what actually how I taught my kids how to read uh, before they started school. Um, we did repeated reading uh, uh, there, but I chose intentionally chose texts that were appropriate for the for the for the children nursery rhymes. Uh, short poems, uh, plays with sounds, uh, uh, um, tongue twisters, and so what would happen? It was I would read to uh, read to them a couple times, and then I would inv- invite them to read along with me, and then eventually I would say, "Okay, now you guys read it to me." And it, essentially, but they had the text mastered. Uh, I'm sorry, memorized. Uh, but you know, we were trying trying to point them to the words as they were reading them, and really doing this on a regular basis. Uh, they, they begin to build their sight vocabulary, um, begin to play with sounds. I mean, if you think about it, why, why do we have nursery rhymes? I, I think some people suggest it's because of they helped develop that phonemic awareness in kids. So we're doing everything at once with, with, these, with these rhymes, getting kids to the point where they can read them on, the, on their own. There was a study that was done by Bruce Stevenson, a dissertation study with uh, at-risk first graders, uh, and basically taught parents to do this at at, at home, ten minutes a night. Teaching them a nursery rhyme, we went through a process of parents, you read, then we read, and then they have them read to you, and then do a little bit of word study with it. And what he found is, that in three months' time, these kids went from um, went from essentially being non-readers, with their, with their words correct per minute was less than one. Uh, by no, that was in August. By November, they were up to 25 words correct per minute, which is in you know, Ohio. That's that's our uh, that's our benchmark for January, I believe. And yet, nobody ever told them to read fast. They just did this. You know, shows the right kinds of material that lent themselves to younger younger children. And I think that's the key: is what, what kinds of material are appropriate for different age levels.
0: I love that, um, Chase. Did you want to chip in anything on that? Yeah. Funny, uh,
1: my experience also comes from my child um so um my kindergartner he was in kindergarten when uh he went off for spring break and never went back to school again due to the pandemic and uh i used uh materials that tim's talking about like um, uh, nursery rhymes and funny little poems by like ken nesbitt that you can find online and and little books and things and i did read prevention that uh that we've been playing with that. It's very similar. It's kind of like, you know, you read the book to them, then you kind of choral read it together and then they read it back to you. So I did that every day with him. Um, And it was very surprising when he went back to first grade and, you know, everybody was like, oh gosh, this we've lost so much. And this teacher looks at me and goes, how did he grow a year during the pandemic? What happened? And so I shared that research with him as well. And uh, so, I mean, again,
0: it's just materials and, and, derived from repeated readings so small world I have a kindergartner or my my I had a kindergartner oh, that that didn't finish school in March from the pandemic and um he he wanted to read Harry Potter with my class I was I had I was doing the first Harry Potter as a read aloud and and online and and, and we were doing that and he we listened through that and then he wanted to read the second Harry Potter and I was like okay. And I thought, no, I, I, we can do this. So we used um, the, we used uh, read to impress as what we did with it. And so I would, I would read and I would just have him read right after just a sliver after me. I just keep, mm-hmm. keep a pace ahead of him. And then I didn't have him, you know, with, with read to impress where they, they, there's this paired synchronous reading and then the, the lower level reader goes back and rereads part of it. I would just have him reread a sentence because he was in kindergarten, but Um, And we, we confession, we didn't finish all of the Chamber of Secrets, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but I, he's, he's doing phenomenal as a, as a reader. So perhaps in thinking about it in, in a, you know, kindergarten or, or, you know, really young setting is I, we we tend to have that pendulum that swings, you know, back and forth. And so uh, it's not necessarily that we're going to throw out phonemic awareness and, and phonics instruction. We're not kicking that to the curb, but is there room for a dose of oral reading fluency. And could that also really be, you know, connected with, you know, comprehension work as well? Is there a dose? Is there a room for that in kindergarten? I would argue, yeah, there is, there is room for that alongside important or, you know, those those crucial skills like phonemic awareness and phonics, and those can even be integrated in with some of that instruction as well. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: There's that poem by, um, gosh, I can't remember who wrote it but it also teaches spelling and, and phonics, and it's got rhyming, it's called swimming ool. Swimming in the swimming pool is where I like to be, wearing underwater goggles so that I can see. Before I swim. I drank a cup of tea. Now the swimming pool's a swimming ool because I took a pee. <laughs> yeah. Just letters, phonemic awareness yeah. like this. This poem has it all. You can write it inferencing. Either. It's a curriculum. I, that's,
0: yeah, <laughs> that's a well, that's I'm going to. Yeah, that's a keeper. That's a good one. All right. So then let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Um, Melissa Garside, uh, her question was well, long, so I'm going to summarize it. But it's, a, it's really a great question. So she starts out her question by saying, I know that it's generally much more difficult to improve re- reading fluency for older adolescent readers. So she's asking if if there's limited instruction time, especially for teachers at at a secondary level, um, what factors should a secondary SPED or intervention teacher consider as they determine how to make the most impact on improving reading outcomes for students with disabilities? Is there a point at which working on reading fluency will not result in meaningful outcomes? And I think outcomes there we can maybe define for students. If so, what criteria would a teacher use to determine whether to continue work on fluency or focus on different skills and strategies? So, thinking secondary lens, and then specifically students with uh, with, disabil- with disabilities. I can
2: tell well, first, short... first of all, just oh, yeah, just, go ahead, Tim. Yeah, uh, just uh, acknowledge the fact that, and, and thanks for doing this. Uh, we have uh, students in, um, in in the second at the secondary level who are not sufficiently fluent. Um, you know, you look at some of these standards across the states, the common core standards, they usually identify fluency as a grades one through five competency. Um, But, you know, if if students are not fluent by the end of grade five, they don't automatically become fluent. Um, (laughs) It needs to be something that we continue to be concerned about. And the thing is, as noted in this question, you know, a lot of our secondary teachers are not familiar with with fluency, you know, the, the assumption is, well, kids have conquered this during their elementary and middle grades. So it, it's something that we do need to be concerned about. And, and um, you know, I, I guess what I would simply say is that good teaching is good teaching. Those same basic principles that we use in the elementary grades apply to the uh, secondary. The, the key is to find the material that would be appropriate for students at those levels. You know, if you're going to work on poetry, Instead of nursery rhymes, how about poetry by uh, uh, Carl Sandberg or Emily Dickinson or uh, Robert Service, you know, the cremation of Sam McGee. Having kids work on that kind of material it can be you know, quite, uh, quite inspiring, I think, for kids. What do you think, Chase?
1: I agree. You know, it's uh, we, need to, we need to write another book called The Handbook of, of Reading Fluency Interventions for, for Secondary <laughs> Grades. Yeah. Uh, but it'll be the same as the handbook for elementary grades and <laughs> we'll just uh, we'll just <laughs> use less cute font and, and photos. Uh, but I think it, it, I'll give an example the neurological impress method has been around since the 60s and and you know while there's a lot of positive results there's there's sometimes it didn't work and that's just the nature of the beast not everything's going to work for for everybody. but I remember when I was a reading specialist, a teacher in the school had a son who had been, who had been receiving special, ed, uh, special education services his entire life. And he was in middle school at the time. And, uh, and she asked me, she says, what can I do? Like he's never passed a standardized reading test, the state test. And I know that's a concern for, for secondary teachers as well. So I recommended Neurological Impress. And she took it to heart and she did it for a year, 15 minutes a night um, during the week. And, uh, and she came back to me uh, emotional crying and said he had passed the test for the first time ever and she gave me a hug and like patted me and I'm not real good at that so it was a little awkward for me but you know <laughs> and she was like you're you were put on this earth for me yeah. and I was like no it's research i mean it's just out there you know i reached into the cloud and pulled out maybe this one will work and it happened to work for him and it was and it was amazing and it changed the directory of his academic career and and lots yeah. of things like that but Neurological Impress, it's, we yeah. use it all the way.
2: Well, and do you recall what this mom was reading with her son?
1: She actually, it was it was uh, whatever chapter books that he would choose because he wanted to okay. read the chapter books. And she ended up buying two copies of each one because uh, the original Neurological Impress recommendation is to sit right next to the child, grab onto their hand. But now we're talking about middle schoolers, high schoolers. It's probably not going to be appropriate. They're probably not going to... F- we don't want to baby them. Um, I don't want, for lack of a better word, so mm-hmm. they sat across from each other, each with a text yeah. doing neurological impress.
2: Yeah, but uh, again, the the point is you don't you don't have to dumb down the text for the kids. Mm-hmm. No, you're, you're, they, and you know kids know it when you when when you give stuff that's uh, maybe insulting to them. Uh, it's just the stuff that he wanted to read, and all the mom did was provide the support so that he he could negotiate the text. And I think,
0: yeah, I think in a secondary context where recently there's been a lot of emphasis on content area literacy, um, I don't know that we can expect our students to just automatically learn how to read a chemistry textbook uh, or or a social studies textbook. um, That, I mean, there there might be room for fluency in in content area literacy in a secondary context because Sentences get a lot more complex. There's a lot more multi-syllabic words, and the, and the syntax starts to become a little bit different. Or even you think reading to kill a mockingbird. I, that, so there's yeah. there's there's still, I think, a little bit of room for that. I would I would ask though, is you know, if we're talking about a student who it, I guess is there a place where we just say, you know what, this kid's rate is their rate where wherever they're at, even though it's it's you know below benchmark, that it's it's just where they're gonna get and we're just gonna focus on other things. Or do we say, no, getting to a place where students can read uh, smoothly, accurately, and with expression is kind of a non-negotiable, regardless of, of where they're at, uh, of what grade they're in? Or is there nuance and then somewhere in between? <laughs> yeah,
2: there's always nuance, but I think it's something that we just can't throw our hands up and say, well, we, we, just, we can't get them there. Uh, we, we, it's, we can find ways of, if not getting them to that standard, at least get, getting them close seeing improvement and doing it in authentic sort of ways, I yeah. think is really challenging. Um, the, you mentioned science, Jake, and Jace. Uh, you know, Broad Bagger, don't you?
1: Oh yeah, Broad. He's a,
2: he's a we poet. We stole a
1: microphone from him a few years back.
2: <laughs> well, he's a poet who used to be a district attorney in, in New Orleans, and uh, but he writes poetry now for children. And he's been writing poetry around science topics. I forget the exact name of the program, but it's it's really quite sophisticated what uh, what he writes about. So, a great way of getting kids into in science and building fluency at the same time. I'm going to throw, mention another guy too. And, and Chase, you know him, Jim Nagleberger. Yeah, Jim is a professor now uh, in uh, Elmira College in New York, but he worked with me here at Kent, and he did, did a dissertation study on um, on on theater students, and he found you know um, that A number of students uh, got into theater as a result of uh, or or they didn't get into theater because they had a reading problem. But they found that their reading improved significantly once they got into theater, whether you're an actor or the stage manager or whatever you are. You know, what do you do when you're in theater? You have to uh, read a text repeatedly (laughs) until you you have it read automatically and expressively. But again, in a very authentic sort of way. So again, our, we have programs out there at the secondary level for kids to get into you know, theater, chorus. Uh, most of these are extracurricular activities, but, you know, there's a hidden agenda there that, and that, that hidden agenda is we're sort of going to improve your reading.
1: And we know that reader's theater works as well. It's very similar to theater, except you don't memorize the lines and exactly. anything can become a script. I mean, my students in second grade always did the water cycle strip and they always fought over who was gonna be the sewage treatment plant. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's who they wanted to be. But I mean, you can turn anything into a strip it is stripped in high school. I mean, if you take a Wikipedia page, it'd be super boring, but I mean, you can add narrators to it and, and some sort of performance. Um, so yeah, that's something that yeah. can be integrated into, into pretty much anything. We yeah. did it in math. We did this reader-seater math word problems which was really awesome because they become like each sentence would be a new narrator and then all the kids that weren't performing were sitting there trying to do the problem but they right. had the ability to ask a narrator to read again and what that did is it showed where the important information was and where the erroneous information was. Yeah. So it had like a had a lot of unintended positive consequences.
2: Yeah, I, I, I teach a, a course here at the university for, uh, it's called phonics for middle school teachers and upper elementary teachers, but we, we, we have a good dose of fluency in there. And I have the students write, uh, write readers theater scripts or poetry around their area of expertise. And it's so neat to see the creativity when students create easy to create a reader's theater script out of a social studies unit. Mm-hmm. But when you create a, a, a science or social studies, uh, uh, the science or mathematics reader's theater script, where the characters are polygons and triangles <laughs> and rectangles, and they get into this argument about which is which. I mean, that is so cool. That's again, that to me, the creativity, the art uh, that we need to be encouraging in our teachers and students for that matter.
1: you're you're absolutely right. And we got to continue on this because it's super important. I walked into a classroom one time and they were like, okay, Mr. seer what can we do here? It was a science class. And they were comparing and contrasting different animal or species. And there was this, they had the Venn diagram going. And they said, how are we going to do this? And and um, I said, well, yeah, we're going to set up a, we're going to write reader seater script debates. And it's similar to what you were saying, Tim. And I remember one of them and it's still posted on my website where they were comparing and contrasting a squid and a stick bug and the script they wrote is actually still on my site and like they're talking smack and talking uh <laughs> the different characteristics of of each other it's like hey but at least i can you know you know i i don't live in the water and talking about yeah. habitat now they threw in some weird stuff like uh i don't know like one of them said he could rap better than the other but but that was a nice <laughs> addition to you know just make yeah. the script a little more
2: engaging well, and think of what the kids had to do. They had to dig in and do some research uh, and learning about stick bugs and whatever. And uh, the other bug you were talking about. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. But they had an authentic reason to actually do that. Uh,
0: you know, we're, we're putting on a play, you know, we have to have, have a good script for it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Authentic purposes, repeated readings, yeah, uh, writing research. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it, all integrated. I love it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, re, I
2: remember listening. To, once you get going done, it's, it's hard to stop. But yeah, it is. I still remember Henry Winkler giving a talk at the, uh, when it was the International Reading Association several years ago, he was a guest speaker and he talked about himself. You know, He wrote those Hank Zipzer, Zip, Zimfer books about a kid who's having reading problems. And he said, that's me. He grew up with reading problems. And, and if I'm not mistaken, he said it, it was when he was in junior high school that he finally turned himself around and what happened? He joined the, he joined the, the drama club uh, and he found that he could actually had an outlet outlet for his uh, goofiness. Uh, but also it required him to, you know, to actually engage in, you know,
0: meaningful, repeated readings. Uh, and, and of course he could be the star then as well. Part, part two of Melissa's question is she wants to know about uh, reading norms. You know, she states that reading norms are readily available for grades one through eight but she says that she, she hasn't seen reading norms for grades nine through 12. So what are reasonable expectations of, of what to shoot for for reading norms? And I think that's that's work both of you are, are doing right now. So what would reading norms uh, look like for nine through 12?
2: Well, right now, what I tell my students is just extrapolate to uh, take that seventh and eighth grade norm and add <laughs> five words correct per minute per year uh, to the norms is, you know, reasonable that, but that's, you know, that's just plain guessing. Now what Chase and I and David Page are doing, uh, we're engaging in a study this fall where basically I guess one of the questions is what would be the, the level of automaticity or reading rate, if you will, that you would expect out of a successful college graduate. So what we're, what our intention is to, uh, collect, uh, um, oral reading fluency data of college graduates, see what that reading rate is, you know, and then interpolate what the rates might be for uh, kids at 12th grade, 11th grade, 10th grade, 9th grade. And uh, hopefully that might give some indication of that, uh, where we would expect kids to be. So that's, that's, that's our current project.
1: Yeah, coming at you summer 2022 or 23, <laughs> depending on how many revisions we have to make.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. and I would plug that, make a plug there too, that that's where the, uh, a fluency scale could come in handy as well, where if there's not clear cut defined norms for a specific age or specific population, that, that scale still, I think will work really well to, to take an idea of where your, where your kiddos are, where, where your kiddos are at of, are they reading with, with prosody? How is their smoothness? Um, that, that could be a way to also kind of triangulate where they're at with their fluency. Yeah. Great point that, that, uh, whatever scale or rubric you use. Yeah. It's appropriate
2: at every grade level. Cause you know what appropriate reading sounds like at 12th grade or first grade or fifth grade or whatever.
0: Let's work on wrapping up the show here. I'm, I'm sure we could go longer, but I, I don't know if anyone wants to listen to a three hour podcast, podcast episode with us. Um, one, one question is, and this is from Emily and she's a pre-service teacher. So uh, props to a pre-service teacher. Who's interested in, in reading fluency and, and reading research. So that's, that's fantastic, Emily. Um, she's just asking, what are your best tips and tricks for teaching fluency to a struggling student? And obviously it's kind of been intertwined with our whole conversation, but uh, you know, perhaps this can kind of be our final statements on what do we, how do we do this? How do we help kids with, with reading fluency in the classroom?
1: Prior to Tim taking this one away, she also asked how do I get books for my classroom? I believe. And I just wanted to throw out an idea. It's called the garage sale ticket on Saturday mornings. You drive around as a new teacher and you just have a little card that says, I'm a new teacher. My name is so-and-so Emily. And here's my number. And if you have any books left over at the end of the day, I will come by and pick them up and then you can go back on your same route and pick up all the books that haven't been purchased.
0: I love that. I'll, I'll chip in just thrift books as well. Uh, yeah. You can get super cheap used copies from libraries in great condition for four or five bucks a book, um, so that's a cheap way to do it. And I, I did a few donors choose projects to get books for my classroom as well, and and they were really well well funded um, because you know I, I think people in the community they believe in having books in classrooms. So that those are those are a couple quick pointers, Emily. Great, and I'll, and I'll, I'll throw out uh,
2: Chase's website again the bestclass.org although he doesn't post books up there what he does what his second graders did years ago was they took the books that they read and they turned them into scripts and uh, what a natural way of getting kids uh into uh reading a text more than once uh and using a, a, an authentic book as a uh, as a uh, mentor text uh, for writing so uh, the bestclass.org does it still require a uh, the password, Chase? No, the password's gone. The person okay. who is
1: attacking my site is gone. Okay.
2: But if you ever require a password, again, it's teacher? It's teacher. Okay.
1: <laughs> it will always be teacher if I have to put it back
2: on. All right. Okay, I'll, I'll take a crack at Emily's uh, question. What are the best tips for struggling readers? Um, we've kind of been dancing around this all along, I, I, but I'm going to uh, put out a shout out for both Chase and myself. Jason, uh, I wrote a book a few years ago for a teacher's college press, where we looked at uh, intervention at different fluency interventions at different levels. So with what tier one, tier two, tier three uh, interventions look like. And uh, I think we talked about one of the, the tier two, we talked about my fluency development lesson, uh, basically a lesson where kids um, um, <clears throat> learn to read something well, every single day, usually a short text and it involves The teacher modeling the text, the kids uh, reading it corally with the teacher, practicing with a partner and eventually performing it every day uh, and then performing it and doing this every day with a different text. We've gotten some really we use it in our reading clinic as our core lesson and um, we've gotten some really nice results of that. We've actually published some research on that. And Chase, I think you you wrote the tier three intervention for that uh, for that book.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Tiered fluency
2: instruction, I think we called it.
1: Yeah, tiered fluency instruction. And um, yeah, there was several on tier two and FDL was in there. And then for tier three, we went through uh, repeated readings um, in various different ways and examples, as well as neurological uh, impress, uh, neurological impress plus, which is a, um, uh, there's an additional reading comprehension uh, we've we added read to impress um, actually and a lot of those uh, like read to impress and things are going to be available on my website as well and under downloads um, one of the things that uh, we did read like me after that one and Jake and I are actually working on a project called read like us where um, I got an email from actually several asking you know hey a lot of the tier three interventions are one-on-one and we just can't we have too many struggling students. We cannot meet with them one-on-one constantly. Well, the first thing I would say is we can tra- uh, when we did reading together intervention, we trained everybody, parents, the secretary up front, the librarian, paras that had breaks um, so that they could all do this one-on-one. But again, if that's not feasible, Jake and I are working on something called Read Like Us that we're testing out in Utah, which is similar to, it follows a, a similar format um, Jake, you want to describe that one?
0: Uh, yeah, the idea with um, read like us. You know, uh, Chase had an article with a doc. Was it a doc student you did read like me with? Mm, no, it was actually an undergraduate student. Oh, okay. Wow, an undergraduate student, uh, and, and is a 2020 publication, and um, and and so trying to scale read like me to read like us. It follows, um, you know, really, it's it's integrating repeated readings um, in in complex connected text using. Uh, a gradual release format where the the teacher is modeling it, um, is is modeling the, the reading once, and then the group goes through choral reads of it, and then it, it progresses a little bit at a time to eventually where the the reader at the end, the, the individually they go and read that to somebody to somebody else, and their goal is to read it um, smoothly, accurately, and and with expression is is kind of the nuts and the nuts and bolts with it. I'll put a plug-in for that for the tiered fluency book from both of you. That uh well, that was one of my early episodes. That was the first time you were on the podcast, Chase. We were talking about that yeah. book. I was like episodes four or five. If folks want to go back and listen to it, but uh it is it's a it's a short little read, it's really accessible for a practitioner level to kind of get an idea of what, what different levels of intensity of fluency support might look like. And from there springboard off and you can go and, and, and do more, you know, research in any of those individual areas. But um, I, I, I hope that's a book that eventually, you know, gets a second edition or something as, as more of these kind of continue to evolve and, and they'll sort of have core ingredients that are similar across them, but it's different ways to provide an intensity of support and, uh, different approaches to implementation that provides, you know, I, I think folks in, in whatever, uh, you know, sort of cultural milieu they, they have with what reading instruction is, there's, there's something in that book for, for every single uh, reading teacher. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a great little book. Hey, thanks for, thanks, Jake. Yeah,
2: thanks <laughs> for that. <laughs> hey, can I mention one more thing though, before we uh, close it out? And Absolutely. The, the question I, I found in one of the questions I can't find it specifically right now, but the question was this: comprehension is do we teach fluency just for the sake of fluency? Um, you know, I, I think uh, the models of reading instruction suggest that fluency uh, leads to comprehension. And Chase, I'm I'm going to give this one to you because you've actually done some research on that where you found that you know we in your research the kids have actually improved their fluency, but the bigger question is: did you see any changes in comprehension?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have um, now the, the the effects on using a reading fluency intervention, obviously the, the effects were much greater on the reading fluency outcomes, but we also saw moderate effects on their improved reading comprehension, as well as their overall reading growth, uh, which could be attributed to the fluency intervention, which is why I'm starting to think, I'm like, why don't we just
0: call these reading interventions?
2: <laughs> yeah, good point.
0: I love it. Um, I'll, I'll chip on that point too. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, John Sabatini and colleagues mm-hmm. was it 2018 or 2019, but uh, they looked at uh, nape data from the special, uh, the, the special NAEP study that included oral reading fluency and, and, um, and, and this was obviously correlational, but uh, they, they found across the board that yeah. the higher, the the most efficient readers, the ones with the highest levels of fluency on the nape scale, were also the highest, the highest comprehenders, um, and I, I believe they did found a, a, a little bit of a curvilinear pattern, meaning that it was a little bit of an S shape, that there was a, a threshold where below, below which it, 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 there was a, a, a little bit more noise where I guess they said there was a threshold where fluency really starts to improve comprehension. And then there's also an upper threshold where, where more fluency did start to level off. But for the vast majority of students, more the fluency did support their comprehension um, and that, I think there's a caveat there that I'll get to in a second, but even in my dissertation where I uh, meta-analyzed um, 40 years of, or 60 years of paired synchronous oral reading methods, like paired reading, diet reading, read to impress, and NIM, uh, I, my my research found that the effect size for comprehension was actually larger than the effect size for the fluency measures, which is, which I think, which I think speaks to why we care about fluency, because we want the, we do want the automaticity and the expression so that our minds can focus on making meaning. Um, but I, I think the caveat there is, is, uh, goes back to teaching fluency just for fluency's sake, that we can't neglect um, the actual work in comprehension. We can't think that I'm just going to improve my kids in fluency forever and have the back door to comprehension uh, there, There is a point where I mean, there's, there's a dose, but we want to be supporting our kids in fluency, but we also want to be supporting kids and making meaning. So I hope folks don't confuse that if I just endlessly improve their fluency, that I'm sort of off the hook for comprehension. I, I think it needs both. Well said. So wrapping up, I think, is there anything else we want to mention on? Uh, we we kind of just got off on the the tiered fluency instruction book, which you know has quite a bit in there. Um, any other last? Yeah, um, I've maybe? got a little. Yeah
1: little bit of advice, and it kind of, it's going to come from our upcoming book, uh, Artfully Teaching the Science of Reading, uh, along with Brzezinski and Page. We talked very specifically about some concrete examples that you can use for reading fluency interventions, tier one fluency instruction in your classrooms, but in this next book, we we show you, demonstrate, and also, uh, encourage you to make the modifications that meet the needs of your students that motivate your students you don't have to follow step one through 17 if it's not improving um or be or appropriate for your students so that's where we want you to take what we've done and spin it with your own art and 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 implement
0: things that best meet the needs of your context and your students i love that um i'll chip in i guess my last my last thought here is Simplifying perhaps what we're doing during the reading day. Sometimes I, I, I feel that teachers are, they feel like they have to have one set of texts for when they're doing um, like comprehension instruction, or and one set of texts when they're doing more fluency, or and then they're, they have the text that they're doing for science, and the text that they're doing for their writing instruction, and the text that they're doing for social studies. And, and I, I think a lot of this can be simplified that if, if I have a text and it doesn't matter whether I'm in science. I can still be supporting all reading fluency in really small, simple ways. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be this massive dose of fluency all at one time, but I can be incorporating that in little ways throughout the different texts that I'm using. And, uh, you know, a single text, it can be, it can have multiple different purposes. And and again, that's, I think I've been chipping in on repeated readings, how big a fan I am of those. But I think simplifying and using one text for multiple purposes could help teachers just relax a little and take a breath because then they can focus on the text which is what you know what ultimately we we want is to be able to derive meaning from that text in efficient ways tim yep. last words
2: <laughs> uh, you guys took all my words away from me uh, so uh, i say here 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 um, yeah i love how you ended the, uh, which chase the idea that uh you know We've discovered that fluency is a science. You know, it's scientific evidence to support it. But as you said, and uh, Jacob, you implied as well, um, it's an art as well. And finding that uh, you don't have to go out and buy some fluency program. Um, The materials are already in front of us. Uh, Just, you know, if you're interested in poetry, uh, go to Ken Nesbitts, David Harrison's, Broad Baggert's uh, poetry sites, Um, Reader's Theater Scripts, go to Chase's. And use that as inspiration to create your own material and have kids, write their own poetry and their own scripts. I mean, that to me is what uh, school is all about. That's what I remember about being in school, (laughs) writing scripts and then getting in trouble for it. But uh, (laughs) we should be encouraging kids to be authentic in that sort of way and teachers as well. So be artful as well as scientific.
0: We can we can have our cake and eat it, too. We can have really rich, rigorous instruction and we can have it for authentic purposes. We don't have to choose yep. between the two. Absolutely. All right. It's been a pleasure talking with both of you, Dr. Chase Young and Dr. Timothy Razinski. Um, we'll be looking forward to your, to your book, Artfully Teaching the Science of Reading with David Page. And may I'll just book you guys for an interview right when we're done. And then so we know that that's on the schedule. <laughs> um, but I, I, I appreciate your time and uh, best of luck to you in, in all of your endeavors. Thanks for having us, Jake. A great big thanks to Dr. Young and Dr. Razinski for joining me on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. My two cents, I'm just going to chip in one big, and I already talked a lot during the episode, but I, I think what I mentioned there at the very end Uh, deserves a little bit more attention and I I basically said that um, we can have our cake and eat it too and and what I meant by that is we can have really rich, supportive, rigorous instruction and we can do it in ways that are are meaningful for the student and that are using authentic purposes and authentic texts. and I, I don't think those two things or those three things are mutually exclusive. I think we can have it all But I think what it takes to to have it all is it takes our expertise as educators of just using authentic text or using inauthentic text for that matter or using uh, this program or that program or this curricula or that curricula. That in and of itself is not going to make sure that the students are getting the support that we need great steps but not not necessarily going to guarantee those outcomes. I think what does guarantee that we are providing our students the rich support that they need is, is our own expertise as educators. And so I, I applaud you listing this episode because it's clear that you are someone who cares about honing your craft and about becoming a better educator and uh, being able to support your students in the best way possible. And I think as you continue to develop your expertise, you'll be able to take whatever materials, whatever standards, whatever, um, whatever things that you're, you're required to teach, I think you can take those and you can make it better in your classroom for your students. And that is that's my one cent instead of two cents for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Teaching literacy podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, the best thing you can do is just to share it with a colleague say, hey, here's a recent episode I listened to on reading fluency. I thought it was I thought it was really great. You might enjoy it too. Uh, take a listen and, and let's chat afterward and, and talk about what you learned or talked about what what things stuck out with you. I, this could be a great PLC starter or a wave that uh, I hope th- I hope episodes like this are starting conversations among colleagues and are the beginning of of, uh, a learning journey rather than, you know, perhaps the end all be all summative. This is what what we all have to say on reading fluency. So uh, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. And until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.